Hello, friends, and welcome back to our Lenten series on the Psalms. Last week, our psalmist took us into the dark valley and to the Eucharistic table. This week, our psalmist leads us up out of our sin and up the steps of the temple. Along the way, we renew our faith in God's character and in his promise of the resurrection. Let's dive in. Remember our first psalm from a few weeks back, Psalm 51? That psalm has a superscript above it that mentions David and Bathsheba. What that tells us is that a layer of meaning in Psalm 51 only comes to light against the backdrop of that story. We can keep David's fall and forgiveness in mind as we pray the words of the psalm. We have something similar going on here above Psalm 130. This superscript doesn't refer to an episode of David's life, but it does tell us the liturgical context of the psalm. It's one of the songs of ascents. Okay, so what does this mean? Psalm 130 and the other psalms of ascents, Psalms 120 to 134, these were traditionally recited by pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem for various liturgical feasts. I say they went up because Jerusalem is situated on a hill. No matter which direction you came from, you would have to go up to Jerusalem. Also, a sense can refer more specifically to the steps leading up into the main courtyard of the temple. Uh, Ezekiel refers to these steps as a sense in chapter 40, verse 6. As there are 15 psalms of a sense, there were 15 steps into this courtyard of the temple. And according to later Jewish writings, the Levites, who would serve as priests, they would sing on these steps. Um, these psalms. The Jews coming to Jerusalem for a feast, would they would recite these psalms in order to prepare themselves to come into the temple and thereby to come into God's very presence. For the same reasons, the church recommends that the faithful recite 130, uh, Psalm 130 to prepare for Mass, which is our own liturgical ascent into God's presence. And the church gives us this psalm this Sunday in order to prepare for the great feast of Easter, the feast of the resurrection. Now, we'll come back to the resurrection in a minute. Uh, first, let's pull out a few other nuggets from our psalm. We can divide up our psalm into four stanzas, each with at least one reference to the personal name of God, Yahweh. Now, this doesn't come across clearly in the English translation, or specifically the NAB, which is used in Mass, uh, which simply says, Lord. You see, out of reverence for the divine name, the Jews at some point stopped saying the name. When they would come across it in Scripture, they would instead say a substitute title like Adonai, Lord, or Hashem, the name. Out of reverence for the name and also respect for Jewish sensibilities, the church has shied away from saying the divine name in the liturgy. Uh, you'll also see this reflected in many English translations where you'll see Lord, uh, where the divine name would be in the Hebrew. And sometimes in order to make it clear that the divine name is there, um, the English translators will put Lord in all caps. In our psalm, the personal references to the divine name to Yahweh here, uh, it expresses this intimacy with God, which unfortunately can be lost behind the translation Lord. Um, the fact that the name is repeated expresses this intimacy even more emphatically. This intimacy is also conveyed by the first person perspective of the prayer. I cry to you, hear my voice, my soul waits for the Lord. 
and also the way it addresses God directly. I cry to you, let your ears be attentive. Now, take a look at the first line of the psalm. This first line really gets to the heart of the theme of the whole poem. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Yahweh. Depths is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the sea. You can look at Isaiah 51 verse 10 and Psalm uh, 69 verse 3 for examples. The sea, in turn, was affiliated with chaos and death. Just think of Jonah. He's tossed out of the boat and into the sea and swallowed by a fish. This is poetically expressing the fact that Jonah was sent to his death. Jonah cries out from the depths with words very similar to our psalm. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. God hears Jonah's prayer and raises him up, and Jonah uh, praises God, saying, You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jesus will turn to this and say he's going to do something similar to Jonah by dying and rising again. He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And before the resurrection, this is pretty cool, he he demonstrates symbolically this his power over death by walking on the water of the sea. Of Galilee. All right, so when we speak from out of the depths, we're acknowledging the unfortunate state in which we find ourselves because of our sins. We, like Jonah, have rejected the Lord, given ourselves over to sin and death, and we can do nothing to save ourselves. But this does not lead the psalmist or us to despair. No, in, instead of considering his own sorry state, the psalmist turns to consider the character of Yahweh. With you is forgiveness. With Yahweh is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. This is a rather profound statement about God's character. Who, who is God? What is God like? Uh, God is the one who does not mark iniquities, but instead saves his people. Our psalm here is echoing a pivotal event in Israel's history. After God freed the Israelites from Egypt and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, the Israelites sin by worshiping the golden calf. They completely reject God. Moses then intercedes on their behalf, and God, quite astonishingly, renews his covenant with them. Now, while all this is going down, Moses asks God that he be allowed to see God's glory. Now, this is huge. In response, we're told, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Now, notice Moses is not allowed to see God's glory, but he is allowed to hear it. God's glory is to be merciful and abounding in love. This is precisely what our psalmist bases his hope on, the character of God. And we see something similar in our reading from Ezekiel. Here we hear God speak through Ezekiel of when God will raise the dead to new life. I have promised, God says, and I will do it. God is faithful, 
and we know that he'll keep his word. That's who God is. But Ezekiel, like the rest of Israel, had to wait. I will wait for the Lord, our psalm says. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. In Jesus, though, this prayer is answered. See, our, our psalm longs for Yahweh, for Yahweh to come and save him from the depths. In Jesus, whose very name means Yahweh saves, this longing is answered. Jesus declares about himself, I am the resurrection. I am the one who saves from the depths. And by raising Lazarus from the dead, he shows that he is the answer to our psalm. And it's worthwhile to spend a little more time on this gospel reading since it unpacks the deeper theological meaning contained in our psalm. This miracle, this sign that Jesus works by raising Lazarus from the dead, it's the last one he does in the gospel of John. And it sets Jesus on course towards the cross. We're told right after he works the miracle that because of this miracle, some of the Jewish leaders get together and decide to have Jesus killed. And Jesus knew this. Like at the beginning of the story, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick and says his illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, reading over this quickly, you may think he's simply talking about, uh, I don't know, the praise Jesus will receive for working the miracle. But throughout John, Jesus connects being glorified with being crucified and killed. You can look especially at uh, chapter 12, verse 23 to 24, and chapter 13, verse 31. Now think back to Exodus. Moses could not see God's glory, but he could hear it. God is merciful, faithful, and loving. Where is this most fully on display but on the cross. Moses could not see God's face, but the disciples could. God's face, his glory, was made visible by Christ crucified. It was made visible in Christ crucified. Now, by looking at a crucifix, we see an image of God's face. By reading the Passion accounts in the Gospels, we encounter God's face through this text, this, this brilliant display of God's character, his glory. So Jesus goes to Bethany to raise Lazarus in order to be glorified. In other words, he goes to do this, knowing that by working this miracle, he will be sent to his death. This helps us understand better why Jesus wept and why he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. While John leaves out of his gospel uh, the agony in the garden, he includes this episode instead because it's virtually the same. Jesus is going to face death. And why does Jesus do this? Well, tells us later, greater love has no one than this, <laughs> greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loves his friend Lazarus and will lay down his life in order to bring Lazarus life. Thus, the raising of Lazarus becomes a sign, the symbol of what Jesus is going to do for all of us. He's going to lay down his life on the cross in order to bring us new life, to answer our cries from the depths. Now, coming back to our psalm, we can close out our reflections by connecting uh, some more important dots between Jesus and Psalm 130. Now, as I shared at the beginning, our psalm is a psalm of ascents. 
It was prayed by pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem into God's presence to offer worship. The church gives us the psalm to prepare our own spiritual ascent up to the worship of mass. She also gives us the psalm in Lent in order to prepare us for the great feast of Easter. In a similar way, the raising of Lazarus marks the beginning of Jesus's own ascent. The rest of the Gospel of John will follow Jesus up to Jerusalem, up Golgotha, and up the cross. And Jesus invites us to follow him. Psalm 130 is thereby refashioned by Jesus into a psalm of ascent, not to the temple, but to our union with Christ on the cross, who is the new temple. We have seen what Moses could not see. We have seen God's glory, his face, because we have seen it in Christ crucified. And because we know God's character, we can say together with confidence the refrain for our psalm, with the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption.